So we are going to be uh, back in, or I guess in again, First Peter this morning. Uh, so last, last year I had uh, read a book, and this book was about a, a U.S. bomber crew, uh, and they were fighting in the Pacific Theater in the Second World War, and uh, they were given something that was deemed the impossible mission. And now each of the, this crew was special because each of the members on this crew, for one reason or another, uh, were, were without a crew. They had been kicked off or had been uh, politely asked to, to not enter into another plane with another human being. But uh, eventually all of these kind of these misfits, these outcasts, came together to form uh, this bomber crew. And eventually they fixed up this old plane. They gutted it to make it lighter. They added some higher caliber machine guns and they began going on some of these kind of standard missions as, as, a, as, a, as a team. But then one day in June 1943, uh, the impossible mission came to the hands of, of the pilot. And now the mission was to go. They had to go and photograph this, this island. So if you know anything about World War II uh, and the Pacific Theater, pretty much the war took place on all of these tiny, small islands that were between the U.S. and, and uh, Asia. And so, uh, one of the things they needed to do, there was a strategic base that the Americans needed to take in order to be able to eventually uh, invade Japan. And so, the impossible mission was they had to go and they had to take photographs of this island to see if the Navy could actually land there. In order to do that, they would have had to sail for about 30 minutes uh, at, a, at a stable altitude, uh, and they had to do it with no cover from any airplanes, no ground cover. Uh, it would just be them in the sky. And uh, to, to get to this base, they, would have had, they, they, they had to pass uh, two Japanese air bases. And so one Japanese commander who was on the ground watching this scene unfold said it, it looked like what it reminded him was dead animal carcass and about a hundred flies swarming in and out of this carcass, taking their bites at it. See, because by the time they had finished getting the photos, there was about 45 Japanese airplanes that were trying to shoot down this bomber. But through bravery and skill, uh, this crew managed to fight off the planes. They managed to return the photographs back to their base. And those that survived, uh, and even those that didn't, they were, they were given the greatest, uh, the greatest honor you can be given as a, as a serviceman in the U.S. military. They were, be, they were given the Medal of Honor. And so these outcasts, they went from being nobodies who were rejected by their peers, they were rejected by their colleagues and their superiors, to all of a sudden being somebodies who were given the Medal of Honor by the President of the United States for their courage and bravery. And today in our passage, we are going to see how we have gone from being nobodies, from being outcasts, from being shameful people, to being honored and special and crowned. Uh, but not because we have gone and we've completed the impossible mission of moral perfection, but because someone in our place has gone and completed it for us. And so let's look at our passage this morning. It's 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10. 
says this, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the Word of the Lord. So here we have one of, in my opinion, the most extraordinary descriptions of the people of God recorded in the Bible. So what Peter does here is he takes uh, all of these uh, designations and names and, and positions that are given to the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament and he applies them all to Christians in this one passage. See, Peter's main point here is that Christians who have believed in Christ have now become the new Israel in Christ in order to proclaim the glory of Christ. I'll say that again. Christians who have believed in Christ have now become the new Israel in Christ in order to proclaim the glory of Christ. And before we go any further, some of you are probably going to disagree with what I had just said there. Within the church, there are some different views on how, how it is that, that the church today relates to uh, the nation of Israel and how they both relate to God. Questions like, are there uh, two people of God? Uh, the Israel from the Old Testament and the church from the New Testament? Or is there only one people of God and therefore the church is the new Israel? And if it is the case that the church is the new Israel, is the new Israel composed of believers and unbelievers like the old nation of Israel? Or is it composed of only believers? Now, these are all questions that we wrestle with and we search the Scripture for. And I hope... Uh, that I can bring some clarity through the study of this passage. But in the end, uh, we may end up not agreeing on this. And that is totally fine. Christians throughout the centuries have disagreed uh, on these things. But what we do see here, I think what most of us can agree on, is that Peter, he, he makes some extraordinary claims about the people of God. First, he says that the church in a way, it's the new temple of God in Christ. He says the church is the new temple of God in Christ. And then secondly, he says that the church is the new priesthood and is a new people of God in Christ. And these 
two truths are, they, they change the way that we relate to God. They change the way that we approach God and, and we approach one another and relate to one another and relate to the world around us. And so that's what we are going to be looking at this morning, those two points. And so let's talk about the first point. The church is the new temple of God. Look, look again at verses 4 and 5. It says, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So here, Peter, he's going to mention two sets of stones. The first stone that he mentions is the living stone. And later in verse 6, he, he describes the stone. He says, this, there's a stone that is laid in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And then later in verse 7, he says, the stone, this stone, the living stone, has been rejected by the builders, but it still has become the cornerstone. And so we know, Peter doesn't directly say it here, but we know that this living stone is none other than Christ Himself. See, Jesus, during His own ministry, He applied this prophecy to Himself. He's, he's speaking with the religious leaders and He tells them the, the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. And if you remember that parable, uh, Jesus there talks about how uh, the, the owner of the vineyard, He sends uh, His his workers to go and to check on the vineyard and the tenants continue uh, time after time to abuse and to kill the messengers that are sent by the owner of the vineyard and then eventually the owner sends his son. He says, surely they will not kill my son. And the people see that the son of the owner has come and they say, well, if we kill the son, then the inheritance will be ours. And so they reject and they, rec- and they kill the Son. And Jesus says to the religious leaders that you are the tenants and that I am the Son has, who has been sent. And He says that He is the cornerstone that has been rejected by the builders. In the sight of man, Christ was someone who was rejected. He was God's chosen Messiah for the people of Israel, yet Israel did not accept Him. But here we see that the rejection by the people did not mean rejection by God. It says that though He was rejected by man, in God's sight, He is chosen and precious. And one of the beautiful things is that as Christians, when we are united with Christ, when we have come to Christ in faith, we too are accepted and precious to God. I mean, we might be rejected by men. We might be cast, cast aside like garbage in this world. We might be pushed to the outskirts of society. But that doesn't change how the Lord God sees us. We are chosen and precious because we are in Christ who is Himself chosen and precious. And now with that comes two benefits that we have been chosen by God. Verse 6 says, Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And then verse 7 says, the honor is for you who believe. See, that is really you know, the beauty of the Gospel. The beauty of the Gospel is that on the cross, Christ not only takes away our guilt when we stand before God as 
guilty sinners now forgiven in Christ, but He also takes away our shame. He takes away our shame and He bestows upon us honor in its place. He takes shameful, unclean, impure, unacceptable people and He makes them into clean and pure and and people who are without shame and accepted before God. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about shame. You see, shame is something uh, that ever since the fall in the garden, it has entered into our world along with sin. But it wasn't always that way. And when Adam and Eve were created, how does the Bible describe them? It says that Adam, or the man, and his wife, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. They were both naked and they were not ashamed. So there was no, there was no shame in the Garden of Eden. But then, Adam and Eve sinned. And, and what's the first thing that they do when they sin? Well, the Bible says that they're eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked. And so they go and they, they sew together these, these leaves in an attempt to cover up this nakedness, an attempt to, to hide their shame. Adam hears God walking in the garden and he hides. And when God asks him where he is, Adam says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. And so he's trying to hide his shame for what he has done from God. And really, the, the story of the Bible is about how men and women recognize that we can't cover our own shame. That the coverings that we try to, to make for ourselves, they don't actually remove the shame from us. Someone else must come and cover it for us. See, in its most basic form, Shame really just means that we are, we are unacceptable. We are people who are unacceptable. We're unacceptable before God. Uh, we're unacceptable before other people. We're unacceptable before ourselves because of what we have done. And along with that comes the feeling of, you know, no one is ever going, no one is ever going to love me. How could God ever love such an unacceptable person like me? Because of all of the things I've done, there's no way that, that others are going to love me. Or even more than that, one of the differences between shame and guilt is that we can feel shame not necessarily just about the things that we have done, but we can feel shame for what others have done to us. I mean, someone else has made me dirty. Someone else has defiled me. Someone else has made me unclean and worthless, and I just can't see how, ev- how anyone could ever love me because of what has been done to me. When you read the stories of victims of abuse, victims of sexual assault, victims of horrible atrocities like the Holocaust or uh, human trafficking, you'll see that their lives are, are filled with shame. But why do they feel shame? I mean, they are, they're the victims of evil, not the ones who have committed the evil, yet they still feel shame. They feel unacceptable. And now maybe that is how you feel this morning. You feel like the, these people sitting in the room with me, if they, if they knew how bad I was, if they knew the things that, I, that I've, I've done, 
when I've been by myself, if they knew what I've done in my past, there's no way that they would ever love me. There's no way that God would ever love me. I am dirty, I am unclean, and I am not worthy of anybody's love. Well, there is, there is good news for the shameful. There is good news for those who have, who have felt the shame of what they have done or what others have done to them. God has done something to rescue us from our shame. He has sent His Son to become shamed in order that we might become clean. See, in Jesus' life and ministry, we see that He intentionally goes out of His way to reach out to the shamed. Matthew, uh, when, he's, when he's giving the genealogy of, of Jesus, you'll notice that the genealogy given in Matthew is different than the genealogy given in Luke. And there's, there's reasons for that. And I think one of the reasons is Matthew goes out of his way to include three shameful women in the, in the genealogy of Jesus. You'll look through and you'll see that he mentions Tamar. I mean, a woman of incest who, who laid with her father. You have Rahab, a prostitute by trade. And you have Ruth, a Moabite foreigner who is, who is banned from coming even near the temple because of her uncleanliness. See, but God, He, he takes these, these women who are defined and characterized by their shame and all of a sudden, He includes them in the genealogy of Christ and He now defines them as people who are defined by Him and no longer by their shame. And this pattern, it, it continues throughout Jesus' life. Jesus goes on and, he, and He's born of a virgin. I mean, a woman who is pregnant out of wedlock. I mean, today that's not really much of an area of shame, but in that time, that was one of the most shameful things that could happen to someone. I mean, His birth is first announced to the lowly shepherds. A shepherd was so shameful that they couldn't, uh, their testimony in court wasn't, wasn't trusted. He's born in a manger and not a palace. His parents flee to their former oppressors in Egypt. And he, he lives and he teaches in you know, the armpit of Israel in Galilee. I mean, every good Jew knows that nothing good comes from Galilee. Now, all of these things are instances of shame and we see that Jesus intentionally chooses to come into the world and embrace the shameful thing of it. And when Jesus, He goes to minister to the people, He goes to the shamed. I mean, He's a king who prefers the outcasts and the misfits over the elites. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of the leper. And do you remember that story? There's, there's a leprous man. He's been, he's been sent to the to the outskirts of the town. He's been banished because of his uncleanliness and because of his shame. And he sees Jesus approaching. And he goes against what he's supposed to do and he runs up to Jesus and he falls down and and the Bible says that he begs him. He begs Jesus and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. You can remove my shame. You can allow me to be brought in so that others can love me and that I can love others. And now what's amazing is what Jesus does to him. I mean, Jesus, he doesn't just say to the man, uh, go and be clean, which he has done. 
in other instances, but what he does is he actually reaches out and he touches the man. The Bible says he reaches out and he touches the man. He, he goes against what is, what is supposed to happen. Rather than avoiding and staying away from the unclean, he goes, the clean goes and he touches the unclean and he says, I am willing, be clean. You see, Jesus is able to make the unclean clean. We see in the Old Testament that it's the other way around. That it is the, that is the unclean that makes the clean unclean. But Jesus, who is Himself clean, makes the unclean clean. So Jesus is willing to make you clean. Jesus is willing to take your shame. You know the verse in 1 Corinthians, He who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ takes all of our shame and in its place, He gives us honor. And so come to Christ. Give Him your shame and He will make you, he will make you clean. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, Let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who... And, and, and this, is, this is beautiful. Jesus didn't go to the cross involuntarily. Jesus didn't go to the cross you know, being dragged there. It says, "...who for the joy that was set before Him..." For the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, or shaming the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our passage says, "...whoever believes in Him..." will not be put to shame. But rather, the honor is for you who believe. And so if you are struggling with shame in any way, know that if you have been united with Christ, what happens to Christ happens to you. Christ has despised the shame. He has overcome the shame. And He is now honored and seated high. And the same is true for you if you have placed your faith in Him. The honor of Christ is now yours. And Christ, he, he bestows so much honor onto us that we now become living stones being built up as, a, as the spiritual house, as verse 5 says. With Christ as the chief corner, cornerstone, we now who are united to Christ are being built into the spiritual house of God. See, we have in, in, a, in a new way become the temple of God. Ephesians 2 verse 19 to 22 says that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. You see, the, the, the temple of God throughout Scripture really represents the dwelling place of God. That's what the, the temple theme that you trace through the Bible represents, where God dwells. And so we see kind of like a, a proto-temple in the Garden of Eden. See, God is is dwelling with His people in the Garden of Eden. And then we see, after, because of our sin, mankind is exiled out of the temple of God, out of the dwelling place of God. 
He is still gracious, and then He gives the people uh, a temple and a tabernacle. And if you read through the descriptions of the temple, you'll notice that intentionally it has all of these themes of the Garden of Eden. Because the garden was that first temple, that dwelling place of God that we long to return to. But even further then, the Bible talks about when Christ comes that the true temple of God has now come. Jesus, he says in, or it says about Jesus in John 1 verse 14, that the word became flesh and it, it, that the literal word is it tabernacled among us or, or, and he dwelt among us. And then we see in Colossians 2 verse 9 where it says, the fullness of God, the fullness of deity dwells within Christ. And Jesus in His ministry, when He's talking to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, He says in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they're confused. They're like, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? But then it says He was talking about the temple of His body. You see, the Old Testament temple was just a type it was, a, it was a shadow of what was truly to come in Christ, being the one through which God truly dwells with man. But the Bible goes even further than that. You see, with the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, which we celebrated a couple weeks ago, we see that we now, the church, who are in Christ, have become the new temple of God. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple? That God's Spirit dwells in you? See, Christians, when we become born again and indwelt by the Spirit, collectively we come together to form this new temple of God, this spiritual house of God made up of the people of God. William Barclay, one commentator, related it somewhat to the city of Sparta. See, one time, the king of Sparta, he was bragging to a, a neighboring king about how, or, or a visiting king, about how, how beautiful the walls of Sparta were. And so this, this king, visiting king, comes to Sparta and he looks around and he sees that there are no walls in Sparta. And he asks, where are these renowned walls of Sparta? And then the king smiles and he turns around and he points to his army and says, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man a brick. You see, you here who are saved in Christ, you are the temple of God. Every believer a living stone. And each living stone in this temple of God has, has an integral part to play in God's house. I mean, one stone requires another stone to sit on and to embrace it. And other believers require other believers to walk through this Christian life and to fulfill the mission of God. I mean, that's why it's important to not neglect the gathering of the saints. Because collectively, we are together the people and the temple of God. But next, Peter warns that those who do not believe in Christ, they are, they are outside of this spiritual house. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says, 
So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. See, Christ remains the cornerstone regardless of whether or not people accept him. There was that saying going around uh, during the 2016 American election, no, not my president. The person who won the election is, is not my president. I refuse to acknowledge that. Well, whether you recognize someone as the president doesn't change the fact that they are your president. And the same is true with Christ. The fact that people reject Christ does not change the fact that He is the cornerstone, that He is the one on whom God is going to build His church. And those who reject Christ are never going to escape from that stumbling over Him. They will stumble and they will fall and they will be destroyed as it says they were appointed to or they were destined to. See, Christ comes and He divides. Christ divides the people in two. There are are those who believe, who are incorporated into this spiritual house of God, and then there are those who reject, who fall and stumble and are judged for their rejection. One person said it this way. He says, Christ is laid in the path of every man, woman, and child on on their course into the future. And in our encounter with Him, every person is changed. No one comes to Christ and is not changed. One is changed for salvation and one is changed for destruction. One cannot simply you know, step over Jesus and go on about their daily routine and pass by and build for themselves the future. One either sees and becomes a living stone or becomes willingly blind and, steps and trips over the great cornerstone. See, if you have truly placed your faith in Christ, you have become a living stone in the temple of God. But if you have not, I mean, I invite you to come and to trust in Him. And Christ will, will take your sin. He'll take your guilt and He'll take your shame and He will, he will make you new and He will bring you into the people of God and incorporate you into the house of God. Do not reject the cornerstone any longer. Now Peter's second point is that not only are we the temple of God in Christ, but we are also the new priests and the new people of God in Christ. Look at verse 5 and 9 to 10. Verse 5 says, You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then down in verse 9 it says, But you, in contrast to those who have rejected Christ, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Now notice all of the descriptions that Peter uses here for the church. I mean, they're holy and a royal priesthood. They are a chosen race. They are a holy nation. They are people for God's own possession. And they are, they are ones who previously were not God's people, who previously had not received God's mercy, but now they are God's people who have received His mercy. Now earlier in the service we read three passages, and these are the passages that, that Peter is alluding to here. There are Exodus 19 and Isaiah 43 and Hosea 2, which Alex read. And now all of these were, were spoken to the nation of Israel, but now God applies them to the church, to the new covenant people of God, those united with Christ. And, and so we see that the church is now God's chosen race. You see, through the church, though the church is made of, of many races, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, the Bible says, God has made for Himself a new race. A race that is not traced by physical descent, but by spiritual descent. A race that is not uh, those who are the physical seed of Abraham, but those who are the spiritual seed of Abraham. Which Galatians 3 says that there is one seed, and that is Christ, and those who are in Christ become the descendants of Abraham. We also see that the church is called a, a royal priesthood and a holy nation and God's treasured possession. Remember Exodus 19, 5-6, Now therefore, if you will obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is Mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, after God had delivered His people from slavery in Egypt, He calls them a kingdom of priests. And now, God has delivered us. He has performed another exodus. He has delivered us from the greater slavery, the slavery of sin. And He now calls us a kingdom of priests. And Israel, as a nation of priests, they were to be a holy nation that mediated between God and the surrounding nations. I mean, people were to, to look at Israel and they were to see that they were set apart by God, that they were holy, and in turn, they were to turn and to glorify God. And so the whole nation was called to be priests in this way, but they also see that within that, God had selected certain priests. The tribe of Levi who were called to draw near to God and to offer sacrifices to Him. But now... Peter, he, he applies that to the church. And he says it's, not just, it's no longer just a limited select group of people who are priests, but it is all Christians. I mean, the Reformation doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. We have direct access to God through the death and resurrection of Christ. And we are now priests before God who are called to bring what Peter calls in verse 5, spiritual sacrifices to God, which will be acceptable through Christ. And now the question is, what are those spiritual sacrifices? What is it that we as Christians now, we're not bringing animal sacrifices to God. So what are the sacrifices we bring as priests to God? Well, Romans 12, verse 1, which some of you may have memorized, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present 
yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, our sacrifices now as Christians and as priests of God are our lives. We are to bring lives of devotion to the Lord, giving up ourselves for the service of His kingdom and of His church. We are priests who offer ourselves to God just as Christ, the great high priest, offered Himself as the ultimate and final sacrifice to God. And then lastly, we see the description of the church is that we are now God's people. See, once we were not God's people. Once we were strangers and foreigners and aliens of God. But now God has shown us mercy. God has said the the passage that uh, Alex read, uh, God earlier in Hosea 1 says, uh, he, He tells Hosea to name his children no mercy because I will have no mercy on the house of Israel. And he says, name your next child not my people because the people of Israel are no longer my people. But now... God says, no, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. See, God has done that to us. He has shown us mercy. He has made us His people and brought us near. And we have been called the sons and daughters of God because the Son has granted us mercy. And now all of this has been done for a purpose, with a purpose. God grants to us all of these beautiful designations for a reason. See, God's act of redemption, His act of making us the new temple and new priests and the new people was ultimately for His own glory. For His own glory. Look at verse 9 again. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. See, God has made for Himself a chosen people so that we might proclaim His wondrous grace to all. And for what purpose did did God choose Israel and make them His people? Jeremiah 13.11 says, I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to Me, declares the Lord, that they might be for Me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. See, He chose Israel that they may glorify Him. And why did God choose the church to be His people? Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. We have been chosen by God for the glory of God. And remember Peter's main point that I stated at the beginning. Christians who have believed in Christ have become the new Israel in Christ in order to proclaim the glory of Christ. God has been gracious to us and He has bestowed upon all of us all of these amazing identities all for the glory of His name. Romans 3 says that God sent Christ 
primarily for His glory as He conquered the great enemy of sin and death. We can often think the cross is all about us. The cross is about uh, God uh, showing His great love to us. And that is true, but that is not the primary purpose of the cross. Romans 3 says that God put forward Christ as a propitiation by His blood in order to show His righteousness. His righteousness so that He might be both the just and the justifier of Him who has faith in Jesus. And so now let us, as the new Israel in Christ, do what the first Israel failed to do. I mean, they were called to be a holy nation. They were called to be a kingdom of priests to proclaim the excellencies of Him who delivered them out of darkness into His marvelous light. But they failed. I mean, they profaned the name of the Lord among the nations and, and, and they chased after idols and they defiled themselves through sexual immorality and lawlessness. But oh Lord, please let that not be us. Let us, by the power of the Spirit, be a people who will turn from idolatry, who will turn from corruption, who will turn from sexual immorality, who will turn from our lostness, and who will turn and offer our lives and ourselves as living sacrifices to God. I want to close with a passage from Revelation chapter 5. And this passage talks about how we have now become a kingdom of priests and that all of, all of history is really pointing towards this moment where Christ Himself is going to be glorified above all. So Revelation 5, verse 1, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And so John there, he, he's seeing this scene and he, he weeps because he knows that this scroll contains the judgments of God. This scroll contains the purposes of God on the earth and not a single person is found worthy to execute what God has planned. And so he cries and he weeps because the promises of God will not be fulfilled. But then all of a sudden, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw there a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he, he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God 
from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forevermore. Amen. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You see, all blessing, all honor, all glory, all, all might has been given to the Lamb because He alone has been found worthy to take hold of the scroll of God. And He has given Himself as the Lamb who was slain in order to ransom for Himself a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a chosen race unto God. And so now, as priests of God, let's be sure that we go out and we proclaim this worthiness of Christ, of the Lamb, and the excellencies of His grace to all of those around us. Amen. Let's pray.